Scotch Stories by Whiskey FM. So it would be marvellous to talk a bit about Bowie Brothers and Rudd um, and its relationship with whiskey. I think it's... You can't argue with the fact that Berry Brothers and Rudd is renowned throughout the world as being a wine merchant, probably the most famous wine merchant in the world. Um, when did Berry Brothers and Rudd start to sell whiskey? And how has Berry Brothers and Rudd's relationship with whiskey changed over the years and the way that it's interacted with the whiskey? Well, originally, Berry Brothers and Rudd, the original shop in St. James's Street, was a, a, a coffee supplier to the hundred or so coffee houses that existed in the, at the end of the, um, of the 17th century in you know, one, of the, one of the wealthier parts of, of London. But just supplying coffee was not enough to a, a, a little business. They wanted to supply other things as well that the gentlemen who lived around that area um, require. So they quickly went into spices as well, which were very precious in those days. One doesn't realise it, but they were incredibly uh, expensive and exotic and from the Far East, and, and ships could bring it back. There were no aeroplanes or anything. So it was all incredibly expensive stuff, and the only people who could really afford it were the same sort of people that could afford to buy coffee um, in the 1650s to 1698 when we started the business. So we got into spices thereafter, and then uh, probably it was about, it took about a century before Berry Brothers, or the company, got into the um, world of wines and spirits. And in the 1800s, the, um, very much Berry Brothers and Rudd would be a go-to place for people in the know, in the area, but we don't pretend to be anything other than just a local retail shop, really, uh, in, in the world of wines and spirits. But the customers that came here would, were quite demanding. They needed the proper stuff, they needed the real stuff, the really, really good stuff, so it was up to us to um, make sure that we had um, all, all the very best stuff we possibly could get hold of in the cellars and Berry Brothers and Rudd. And a lot of that, a lot of that was in cask, so in barrels. And in, up until the 1850s, 1860s, um, most of the wine and spirits that we sold was actually in bulk form. So people would select from a cask and then they would bring in the bottles or get somebody to bring in refillable bottles. Um, and then they would be filled by... Um, the man who eventually we call the, the butler. Um, he was called the bottler, of course, in those days, but the East End uh, accent has, has transformed it into, into what we now know as the butler. So in those days, the Berry Brothers and Rudd was um, very much associated with whiskey and with gin, of course, which was prevalent in those days. If we're talking about a slightly different level of, of, of people coming here, because the people who lived in in the West End of London were tended to be very well off. So they were not known as probably drinking beers and, and cheap gins. They were better known for drinking the top end of, of, of wines and, and, and spirits. Um, in the 1800s, there was very little matured uh, whiskey at all. I mean, you have to pass forward to the 1860s, really, um, before whiskey even started to get known. Um, but it probably would have been, you know, there have been a few distilleries and cast, the odd cask here or there, 
that would have been in various cellars and then sold to people who were connoisseurs of Scotland's finest spirit. So I think it, it sort of developed from there. Then in the 18, uh, the 1900s, I suppose, then obviously things got, um, Scotch whisky became uh, better known. And blended whiskies, thanks to Mr. Usher and Mr. Walker and Mr. Mackey and, and Mr. Buchanan and Mr. Dewar, that had suddenly become a sort of gentleman's drink. And uh, blended whiskies went came to the fore. And then, of course, Berry Brothers said, well, okay, why don't we have our own? In the same way that Shivers, and the same way that most of these, uh, most of these companies um, had their own, what they called Italian grocers. We were an Italian grocer, I suppose, down here. And we just put together three or four casts to create consistency in a whiskey, which we then offered to people as our own. Mm. And in our case, it was called... Um, it, it was called Cutty-Sark. In, in Mr. Walker's case, it was called Johnny Walker. And, and Shivers, it was Shivers. But it, it was just basically shops putting together um, a, a blend of whiskies, which they could produce a consistency, so that time and time again the people would come back and knew what they were, were buying. Whereas before that, it was very difficult because it was individual casks here and there. And with spirits, uh, Berry Brothers and Rudd just went on um, developing, choosing, selecting with um, an understanding and experience um, the best of the best. And still today we do rums and, and we do cognacs. Um, but we don't do, uh, we do some, some single casks, um, rums, we do quite a lot of single casks now, it's become very popular, but not nearly as many as, they, as, as, as we do of whiskey, of course. When the Berry Brothers and Rudd whiskey team is out and about, I suppose all around the world, what sort of preconceptions do they come up against, if any? And are these preconceptions welcomed? Berry Brothers and Rudd is very well known, I think, within the corridor of the M25. If you go outside the M25 in the UK, Berry Brothers gets less and less well known. Um, it's still reasonably well known as being one of the top three or four wine merchants in, in, in the UK in terms of being able to provide the top quality products um, at a good age and a good, good price. Internationally, it's not nearly so well known. We have operations, however, in, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in Japan. Um, so it's reasonably well known, again, amongst the, uh, the people who like to, to, to really enjoy the top wines. But it's not a. It's not a sort of. You know, in the states, we own a, own a company as well. But it, it's not. Berry Brothers and Rudd is 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 better known um, in the UK, of course, than it is in, internationally. So when we introduce Berry Brothers and Rudd, quite often in New York, you will come, I guess, up uh, with somebody. You talk to somebody who, yeah, he he does actually hold stock with Berry Brothers and Rudd because we sit on about jolly nearly a million cases of, of wine down in Basingstoke. So rather than just a tiny little shop here, we have six or seven warehouses down in, in Basingstoke where uh, people will store their wine with us, um, temperature controlled, under laser beam security, um, and, and they pay us a, a, a storage fee for every, every year, but then we can ship that stock around the world. But uh, you know, at the top end, then it is, it is reasonably well known. We don't own any vineyards. So we rely on a very good relationship that we have with the top chateau around the world to, to provide us with enough stock 
for our developing consumer base. Um, a lot of money is now coming in from um, from China as they get to know and understand the ethos and the and the, um, the, w the way that we operate in very brothers and right. Um, the United States now we've got some people now based in the United States who are developing that side of the business as well. Um, so when people talk about Berry Brothers and Rudd, they do um, they they do recognise it as being one of one of the, um, the the top end wine merchants in the world. But it's very small number of people, mm. um, and just as well because uh, we probably wouldn't be able to <laughs> supply everybody with the sort of wine that 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 is sought after now. Um, but it, it's horses for courses, and we don't come up. Against too many barriers. Um, obviously, if you're shipping wine into certain countries, there's a certain amount of difficulty. But we can maintain it here for them. We can warehouse it here for them. And if they want to come and collect it and take it back to wherever they live, uh, where the import duties must be quite high, and they take it in various, you know, duty free, or they take it in through their allowance and so on. That that is perfectly possible. But most of our business is actually done with private individuals um, who have uh, who are quite happy to pay the taxes and duties on on their wines um, going into the individual countries, but they just really want to consume the, the, the very best. best. Yeah. So, in terms of whiskey, what does Barry Brothers and Rudd want to be renowned for amongst whiskey drinkers across the world? Yeah, I I think you know, like like any wine merchant, you want to have a reputation of of putting into a bottle a quality of product which is um, unquestionable. And it may not be your taste, but the quality of it is going to be uh, absolutely um, uh, outstanding. So quality of the product that goes into it first of all. Secondly then in terms of, of whiskey, we're looking for um, complexity, texture, balance, delivery. Mm -hmm. So delivery, what you get on the nose, you get on the palate, is very important. Um, we're not looking f to replicate what the distillery has out there as a commercial product. So we're dealing with individual casks. And individual casks are just a snapshot in time. Now each cask is going to be slightly different. You're not going to get a consistency between one cask and another cask. And in a way that is a, is a benefit. Um, but it's not for building a brand of a distillery. You need to have consistency to be able to do that, to be able to project mm -hmm. that. Um, so for Berry Brothers and Rudd, what we probably uh, like to do is to produce something which is going to be slightly off the wall, slightly different to that that's being produced by the, within the parameters yeah. of, the, of the distillery itself. We can innovate by combining two different distilleries. We can make blended malts, which we do reasonably well, I think, now. We've got this wonderful range called the Classic Range, at very accessible prices, at £32 a, a bottle for a, you know, an Isla, um, classic Isla style, or a classic Space Isla, or a classic Sherry style, uh, or a lightly peated style. So that's, that's a range that everybody can afford and get to get into. It's a springboard, really, into, into our own individual cask or independent bottling, single cask bottlings. We absolutely adore putting whiskies together like that for the, for the blended side because we very much feel that uh, a blended whisky is, is totally underrated nowadays, berated yes. by quite a lot of people who think that single malts uh, tend to be so much better than, than blends. It's not so necessarily it's true. Yeah, it's yeah. not, not, not necessarily true. They're very, they can be very different. Um, 
but not every single malt that you put into a bottle is going to be as good as you know the, the great blends. There's no doubt about it that um, um, things have changed over the years, but but blends have just been uh, um, magic, yeah. and it's just you know blends. I always think are wonderful on a Friday evening when you've got a bit of a thirst, you need a whiskey and soda, yes, um, <laughs> and the blended whiskey just hits the spot. Whereas single malt very much sort of after dinner drink and what do you have before dinner as well, but it, you've got to think about it. Yeah, it's much more thoughtful. It's a it's a connoisseur sort of drink. Which distillery have you enjoyed working with the most when you've been selecting casks for? Yeah, I, I I've, of course I've spent most of my life with Glenrothes. So I've yeah. I mean the fun of working with one particular distillery is that you understand the nuances, you understand how. The spirit mixes with with uh, individual casks, and the type of cask that it goes best with. Um, it, in a way, it's like growing a child. You know, you put put him or her through the right, hopefully the right schooling, to suit the character, and then try and steer them then into wherever their strengths lie. And the same thing happens when you're bringing up um, the whiskey. You're putting it into the right casks, making sure that it's developing in the right way. And, and as fast enough as mm-hmm. as fast as you wanted to develop without developing too fast and, and going off the rails. <laughs> so, on favourite distilleries, and I, I think in terms of, well, working with those is Glenrothes because I've done most of my life working with Glenrothes. Um, but I've also worked with three or four other distilleries which I've enjoyed, and each one is, is certainly is, is very different mm-hmm. um, in terms of culture, the people that are there. They, the most exciting thing, I think, apart from the, the quality of the spirit itself and, and how, you, how you make the spirit and how you mature it, which is even more important, or as important, um, is, is the, the culture of the distillery itself, and, the, and that comes through the people. Mm. It comes from the manager down. Um, and I've always been amazed at the, the knowledge that uh, these guys have who work in the distillery. They've probably been there, you know, three or four generations of their family, um, you get some some re- people with wonderful memories of stories and anecdotes. You get some people who have got uh, unbelievable brains about knowing where certain casks are in the distillery and which where they're <laughs> situated and what they taste like and that sort of thing. How they know how what it tastes like. I don't know. Um, but uh, to me, the, the the it's the whole culture of the of the distillery. It's it's the um, it's not only the flavour of the cask side, and it's but it's the people as well. And that's what I was saying, you know, my father, when he said, you know, you haven't, you will never find a job that incorporates those three things of, of, of people and, and liquid and travel. It, it does. There is, there is something holistic about the Scotch whisky industry that, um, and, and most of the character and the heart really comes from the distillery itself. It's been lovely um, getting to know and getting to see what Darthmill Distillery has been up to over the last couple of years and Barry Brothers and Rudd are the only stockist or official stockist for... Yes, we're the agent for for Darth Mill internationally, yes, and and the UK. So that must have been very exciting to have watched the Darth Mill story unfold, really. Enormously so. I mean, it was kind of secret for many people. Um, There there were a few connoisseurs who knew that it was in existence, Mm. you know, 10 or 12 years ago when it was uh, very much a sort of farm distillery. Um, brilliantly put up and brilliantly run and one of the very few distilleries in Scotland if not 
possibly one of the only distilleries in Scotland that didn't actually go outside looking for capital to, to develop it. And I think the brothers, Francis and Ian, are, are just the most lovely people. They're primarily farmers. And this is like going back 200 years in, you know, in my family as well, who were doing exactly the same thing. They were farmers first and distillers second. And uh, it's just the most lovely spirit. It's turned out absolutely beautiful. It's got a great name. But more than anything, again, it's, it's just it's the whole culture of Daft Mill. Um, it's the ethos of it. It's the matter-of-factness of it. Um, what you get, uh, what you see is what you get. Um, and there's, there's no artificial marketing about it either. It's uh, straight from the heart. And, you know, when you have a product like that, you believe in it, you develop it with love and with passion, you promote it with love and with passion, which is what we do at Berry Brothers and Rudd. Um, it's, it's not a question of selling it, it's just really a question of trying to find the right homes for it. <laughs> well, they're pieces of art. I think those bottles that Francis and Ian have created are yes. just incredible. And you... Yes, you they are. They are. You yeah. see, each individual cask is kind of, you know, it's, it's nurtured and we sell so little of it, we release so little of it, or they release so little <laughs> of it, um, that it's become, it, it, it shouldn't, I think it's a shame in many ways that it's, a lot of it is just collected. Yeah. Um, and the, there's a certain amount of it which obviously... I mean, it goes up in price and, and people like make money mm. quite easily yes. um, but at the end of the day the brothers make a whiskey to be drunk and enjoyed um, and as you can see it wasn't a hugely commercial operation otherwise they would have obviously done it in a very different way and I think we're very honoured to be selected as the distributor because I think the ethos of Berry Brothers and Rudd is kind of similar to that, that we're not going pile it high and sell it cheap um, we're going to seek out the best buyers, the most the, the people who really appreciate quality to sell to. And it sounds a bit corny, but if you can afford to do it, then it makes a lot of sense. Um, in today's world, a company like Berry Brothers and Rudd, which is privately owned, doesn't have the same sort of shareholder pressure that a multinational would have to produce the goods time and time out. So, the, the difference is that we can think long term mm. and behave long term as opposed to needing cash for today. So there's no cheapening of the brand, which I think is utterly apparent. It's, and perhaps yes. brand is even the wrong word. It's a Well, I suppose you can say brand berries. Um, absolutely. And I think what it stands for, and we were alluding to a little earlier on, is to do with, you know, we'd love to have that badge of confidence from the consumer in us but in order to have that confidence they have to understand that what we exude is authority and uh, expertise um, in in the world in which we are involved and, and it's so, so much easier to trust a, duct, a doctor that you have confidence in um, or a tailor or a, you know, anyone in the services that you have built up a confidence in and leave that part then entirely to them to deal with. And for them then to interpret, you know, the style of clothing that you really want and to be able time and time to do that, or a hairdresser even. You know, you have a, you have a confidence mm. and 
it's basically what we we're trying to do with Berry Brothers and Riders, build up that confidence and then get more and more people coming in. Because the, you you can't cut corners on these things at that end of the the business, and the average price of a bottle of wine here is about three or four times that of the average price of a bottle of wine in the supermarket. Um, overall, that's in in a year. So you're obviously dealing with a different type of wine and a different, in many ways, a different type of, of clientele, um, which the whiskey business has in in. In, in bundles, you know, uh, in, in 1970 the price of a bottle of whiskey was three days pay. Today that same bottle of blended whiskey is two hours minimum wage, two and a half hours minimum wage. So it's gone from three days, so inaccessible, yeah. into something which is totally accessible. And in, in many ways that's helped Scotch whiskey. And I think the social media, as I mentioned before, is very important because you get a lot of people who do know quite a lot of it about Scotch whisky, feeding that, feeding that appetite for knowledge. Um, but be very careful on that because there's a lot of stuff out there that's not necessarily totally 100% yeah. accurate. Um, so reliability is very important, and that's why somewhere like Berry Brothers and Rudd will always be a go-to place because you've got expertise there, masters of wine, you've got experts in the world of whiskey and rum and gin and so on. It would be fair to say, in that case, that Berry Brothers and Rudd promotes connoisseurship within our industry, which is a marvellous thing. Do you find that younger drinkers are attracted to that? I mean, we have a fairly funny... I think our younger generation in the UK has a, has a strange relationship with alcohol in lots of ways. Um, overconsumption... Binge all these, all these sorts of things. How does Barry Brothers and Rudd encourage that younger generation and newer whiskey drinkers into a world of connoisseurship? I suppose. Well, it's a very, it's a, it's a very good question, and you, you obviously fish where the fish are. Um, it's, it's, it's something that you try and um, promote through, it's, it's, a lot of it is done through personal contacts so it's, it's word of mouth um, you know, probably have, we have 90,000 customers I think um, 20,000 pretty active ones and a lot of it is, is word of mouth so it's it, it, we do encourage obviously new customers coming in what we're, in the UK we're kind of at a, a, a we're always obviously regenerating uh, customers and new customers coming in and the reputation is, is out there. Internationally is where we really want to try and save the seed a little bit more mm -hmm. and so we're, we're taking great steps and planting people in, in the United States of America as I said and also in the Far East in Asia to develop those contacts there. Glenrothes, which we've, we've spoken about already but Barry Brothers and Rudd no longer owns Glenrothes, is that no, correct? No, that's right. And in fact, we, when we took it on in 1987, we didn't own it at all. We, we had an understanding, which was to develop the brand on behalf of um, our friends, the Edrington Group, who were the owner of McCallum and, and those days, Tamdu and, and uh, Bullahavin and various others. And um, then in, in 2010, we actually purchased the brand, not the distillery. And we, because it had been pretty successful around the world, we had moved it up from selling absolutely zero 
up to about uh, 500,000 bottles a year in 2010. Um, we purchased the brand from them and so and, and stock. So we bought, uh, we had been buying a lot of our own stock anyway, but laying it down, which is not what had happened before, because it hadn't been laid down for single warts, it had been laid down for blends, and so it's a different, different policy, completely different wood policy. Um, so then in 2010, having purchased the brand, we then invested our own money, obviously, it wasn't just a joint venture, it was our own money in behind the brand. And then in 2017, um, we had a very amicable relationship with Edrington, who wanted to buy it back. So they bought back um, a brand which had been nurtured and gone through its childhood and adolescence and then was ready to go out into the big wide world of Edrington. And of course they own their distributors around the world, in major countries and around the world, So, which Little Elberry Brothers and Rudd didn't. Mm. Um, so they had access to um, a distribution system which we, we find a little more difficult. Was it painful <coughs> saying goodbye to Glenn Rogers? Um, as a company, very sad, um, because in the same way that we said goodbye to Cutty, we ju it just outgrew us, really. Uh, and, and that's what happened with uh, Glenn Rothis as well. It was, in a way, it was, it was successful. But, you know, you want a kid to be successful. And so, when you can no longer teach it, when you can no longer um, add anything to the party, then you let them go. And yes, you have an enormous amount of pride behind the, you know, knowing that you've, you've given it, or her, him, or the right education and, and developed it properly. And yes, of course, it's enormously sad to say goodbye. Um, but it's still around, yeah. and it's still going from strength to strength. And you know full well that uh, you know the the early days, the formative years, were actually developed through Berry Brothers and Rudd. So, um, and it just simply outgrew us. And it was too successful, I guess. Yeah, it must be so satisfying though to see that brand being it's being so successful and it's having, lovely. Yeah, a company like Edrington. Taking it yeah, on. I mean, they, they have been enormously successful, of course, Edrington, um, in the world of whiskey with Famous Grouse and McCallum in particular. And I see that they would uh, they, will, they will probably do exactly the same with, with Glenrothes. It's there, ready for the making. Yeah. It's got every positive imagery out there. Um, they've changed it from the vintage-only concept into an age statement, which makes a lot of sense for stocks, uh, because stock management was, was terribly difficult with, yeah. with, with vintages. Great fun to promote, yeah. of course. Yeah. And it's a collector's item uh, as a result. Um, you know, the vintage Glenroth is now, as you can still buy at reasonable prices. Um, I saw some on the auction. I had to look. Well, I know. I think, uh, some of the <laughs> older expensive. ones are now creeping up um, in price. But particularly the 1970s uh, uh, and the 80s are... are um, you can still you can still find some for reasonable prices, you know, compared to the others from from that sort of period. And don't forget, you know, the, the, it, it came from this McCallum's sister distillery in the same camp as as um, as as, as Glen in the nineteen seventies. So very similar wood policies were being employed um, at the time uh, by the same company. 
and you know the difference is McCann's is the spirit is a slightly oilier style of of Glenrothes, but they're neighbouring distilleries. They're about a mile and a half apart. Different microbiology, slightly different texture, um, a slightly different style, but similar sort of wood policy. And so, you know, in my view, there, there, were, there were great merits to Glenrothes. There still are great merits to Glenrothes. And, you know, with um, I can see it becoming one of the more favoured um, single malts in Speyside in the future. Do you think the concept of vintage in whiskey is not dead, but I suppose Glenrothes Glen would have been one of the main advocates for it. Now, mm. now they're not doing it. I suppose really you were one of the main advocates. I suppose, yes, and then we were copied, which is always a form of flattery, I suppose. Um, we Vintages, for, for us, because we had a very limited amount of stock, it was quite an easy thing to manage. Um, but it was also quite an interesting concept because you were, in, in, you could you could explain it in the same way that I explained earlier about the wines. You have the character of the wine and the personality of the vintage. So each vintage is going to be slightly different, but it's going to retain the character. And to me, <coughs> it was a wonderful way of not just having the same old product time and time again, but you could actually give people an understanding of what happens if you put it into an American oak sherry cask, or an American oak and a bourbon cask, or an American oak sherry, or a Spanish oak and a sherry, an American oak combination, or a, you know any combinations. So it was basically our way of saying, look, you choose. The character of this distillery is going to be unquestionable, unimpeachable. It's one of those givens. But now, look, just see which is your preference on this. So you give us not only age difference, but also in terms of, of wood policy. And to me, it was enormous fun. The most interesting part of the whole, my whole career, really, um, in, in production side, has been the understanding of maturation, or beginning to understand that, because nobody understands maturation, yes. actually, fully. <laughs> but, but to begin to understand, yeah. you know, what goes best with, um, with the whiskey. And you can do that if you own few thousand casks. Uh, you can, you can play fun. around with it a yes. little bit. Um, it does involve quite a bit of nosing and, and, and tasting and, and, and it's not quite such an easy um, job as most people think it is. It no, so, I mean it sounds delightfully fun but actually when you're smelling lots and tasting lots it must be quite difficult it to... Is, it, it, it is difficult. You, you yeah. soon get used to it but um, it, 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 it's a time consuming of course you don't you, you can only taste a certain number um, before your judgment becomes a little bit uh, coloured. <laughs> so nose is the most important thing, and luckily I have one big enough to, to, <laughs> to, to differentiate relatively. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Ronnie.